This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton On Running After One's Hat I feel an almost savage envy on hearing that London has been flooded in my absence while I am in the mere country. My own Battersea has been, I understand, particularly favoured as a meeting of the waters. Battersea was already, as I need hardly say, the most beautiful of human localities. Now that it has the additional splendour of great sheets of water, there must be something quite incomparable in the landscape, or waterscape, of my own romantic town. Battersea must be a vision of Venice. The boat that brought the meat from the butchers must have shot along those lanes of rippling silver with the strange smoothness of the gondola. The greengrocer, who brought cabbages to the corner of Latchmere Road, must have leant upon the oar with the unearthly grace of the gondolier. There is nothing so perfectly poetical as an island, and when a district is flooded, it becomes an archipelago. Some consider such romantic views of flood or fire slightly lacking in reality. But really, this romantic view of such inconveniences is quite as practical as the other. The true optimist who sees in such things an opportunity for enjoyment is quite as logical and much more sensible than the ordinary indignant ratepayer who sees in them an opportunity for grumbling. Real pain, as in the case of being burnt at Smithfield or having a toothache, is a positive thing. It can be supported, but scarcely enjoyed. But, after all, our toothaches are the exception, and as for being burnt at Smithfield, it only happens to us at the very longest intervals. And most of the inconvenience that makes men swear or women cry are really sentimental or imaginative inconveniences, things altogether of the mind. For instance, we often hear grown-up people complaining of having to hang about a railway station and wait for a train. Did you ever hear a small boy complain of having to hang about a railway station and wait for a train? No. To him, to be inside a railway station is to be inside a cavern of wonder and a palace of poetical pleasures, because to him the red light and the green light on the signal are like a new sun and a new moon, because to him when the wooden arm of the signal falls down suddenly it is as if a great king had thrown down his staff as a signal and started a shrieking tournament of trains. I myself am of little boy's habit in this matter. They also serve who only stand and wait for the 2.15. Their meditations may be full of rich and fruitful things. Many of the most purple hours of my life have been passed at Clapham Junction, which is now, I suppose, under water. I've been there in many moods so fixed and mystical that the water might well have come up to my waist before I noticed it particularly. But in the case of all such annoyances, as I have said, 
everything depends upon the emotional point of view. You can safely apply the test to almost every one of the things that are currently talked of as the typical nuisance of daily life. For instance, there is a current impression that it is unpleasant to have to run after one's hat. Why should it be unpleasant to the well-ordered and pious mind? Not merely because it is running and running exhausts one. The same people run much faster in games and sports. The same people run much more eagerly after an uninteresting little leather ball than they will after a nice silk hat. There is an idea that it is humiliating to run after one's hat, and when people say it is humiliating they mean that it is comic. It certainly is comic, but man is a very comic creature, and most of the things he does are comic, eating for instance, and the most comic things of all are exactly the things that are most worth doing, such as making love. A man's running after a hat is not half so ridiculous as a man's running after a wife. Now a man could, if he felt rightly in the matter, run after his hat with the manliest ardor and the most sacred joy. He might regard himself as jolly huntsman pursuing a wild animal, for certainly no animal could be wilder. In fact, I am inclined to believe that hat-hunting on windy days will be the sport of the upper classes in the future. There will be a meet of ladies and gentlemen on some high ground on a gusty morning. They will be told that the professional attendants have started a hat in such and such a thicket, or whatever be the technical term. Notice that this employment will in the fullest degree combine sport with humanitarianism. The hunters would feel that they were not inflicting pain. Nay, they would feel that they were inflicting pleasure, rich, almost riotous pleasure, upon the people who were looking on. When last I saw an old gentleman running after his hat in Hyde Park, I told him that a heart so benevolent as his ought to be filled with peace and thanks at the thought of how much unaffected pleasure his every gesture and bodily attitude were at that moment giving to the crowd. The same principle can be applied to every other typical domestic worry. A gentleman trying to get a fly out of the milk or a piece of cork out of his glass of wine often imagines himself to be irritated. Let him think for a moment of the patience of anglers sitting by dark pools and let his soul be immediately irradiated with gratification and repose. Again, I have known some people of very moderate views driven by their distress to the use of theological terms to which they attach no doctrinal significance, merely because a drawer was jammed tight and they could not pull it out. A friend of mine was particularly afflicted in this way. Every day his drawer was jammed, and every day, in consequence, it was something else that rhymes to it. But I pointed out to him that this sense of wrong was really subjective and relative. It rested entirely upon the assumption that the drawer could, should, and would come out easily. But if I said, you picture to yourself that you are pulling against some powerful and oppressive enemy, the struggle will become merely exciting and not exasperating. Imagine that you are tugging up a lifeboat out of the sea. 
Imagine that you are roping up a fellow creature out of the alpine crevasse. Imagine even that you are a boy again, and engaged in a tug-of-war between French and English. Shortly after saying this I left him, but I have no doubt at all that my words bore the best possible fruit. I have no doubt that every day of his life he hangs on to the handle of that drawer, with a flushed face and eyes bright with battle, uttering encouraging shouts to himself, and seeming to hear all round him the roar of an applauding ring. So I do not think that it is altogether fanciful or incredible to suppose that even the floods in London may be accepted and enjoyed poetically. Nothing beyond inconvenience seems really to have been caused by them, and inconvenience, as I have said, is only one aspect, and that the most unimaginative and accidental aspect of a really romantic situation. An adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. The water that girdled the houses and shops of London must, if anything, have only increased their previous witchery and wonder. For, as the Roman Catholic priest in the story said, wine is good with everything except water, and on a similar principle, water is good with everything except wine. THE VOTE AND THE HOUSE Most of us will be canvassed soon. I suppose some of us may even canvass, upon which side, of course, nothing will induce me to state, beyond saying that by a remarkable coincidence it will in every case be the only side in which a high-minded, public-spirited, and patriotic citizen can take an even momentary interest. But the general question of canvassing itself, being a non-party question, is one which we may be permitted to approach. The rules for canvassers are fairly familiar to anyone who has ever canvassed. They are printed on the little card which you carry about with you and lose. There is a statement, I think, that you must not offer a voter food or drink. However hospitable you may feel towards him in his own house, you must not carry his lunch about with you. You must not produce a veal cutlet from your tail-coat pocket. You must not conceal poached eggs about your person. You must not, like a kind of conjurer, produce baked potatoes from your hat. In short, the canvasser must not feed the voter in any way. Whether the voter is allowed to feed the canvasser, whether the voter may give the canvasser veal cutlets and baked potatoes, is a point of law on which I have never been able to inform myself. When I found myself canvassing a gentleman, I have sometimes felt tempted to ask him if there was any rule against his giving me food and drink. But the matter seemed a delicate one to approach. His attitude to me also sometimes suggested a doubt as to whether he would, even if he could. But there are voters who might find it worthwhile to discover if there is any law against bribing a canvasser. They might bribe him to go away. The second veto for canvassers, which was printed on the little card, said that you must not persuade anyone to personate a voter. I have no idea what it means. To dress up as an average voter seems a little vague. There is no well-recognized uniform, as far as I know, with civic waistcoat and patriotic whiskers. The enterprise resolves itself into one somewhat similar to the enterprise of a rich friend of mine, 
who went to a fancy dress ball dressed up as a gentleman. Perhaps it means that there is a practice of personating some individual voter. The canvasser creeps up to the house of his fellow conspirator carrying makeup in a bag. He produces from it a pair of white moustaches and a single eyeglass, which are sufficient to give the most commonplace person a startling resemblance to the colonel at number 80. Or he hurriedly affixes to his friend that large nose and that bald head, which are all that is essential to an illusion of the presence of Professor Budger. I do not undertake to unravel these knots. I can only say that when I was a canvasser, I was told by the little card with every circumstance of seriousness and authority, that I was not to persuade anybody to personate a voter, and I can lay my hand upon my heart and affirm that I never did. The third injunction on the card was one which seemed to me, if interpreted exactly and according to its words, to undermine the very foundation of our politics. It told me that I must not threaten a voter with any consequences whatever. No doubt this was intended to apply to threats of personal and illegitimate character, as, for instance, if a wealthy candidate were to threaten to raise all the rents or to put up a statue of himself. But as verbally and grammatically expressed, it certainly would cover those general threats of disaster to the whole community, which are the main matter of political discussion. When a canvasser says that if the opposition candidate gets in, the country will be ruined, he is threatening the voters with certain consequences. When the free trader says that if tariffs are adopted, the people in Brompton or Bayswater will crawl about eating grass, he is threatening them with consequences. When the tariff reformer says that if free trade exists for another year, St. Paul's Cathedral will be a ruin and Ludgate Hill as deserted as Stonehenge, he is also threatening and what is the good of being a tariff reformer if you can't say that? What is the use of being a politician or a parliamentary candidate at all if one cannot tell the people that if the other man gets in, England will be instantly invaded and enslaved, blood be pouring down the strand, and all the English ladies carried off into harems? But these things are, after all, consequences, so to speak, The majority of refined persons in our day may generally be heard abusing the practice of canvassing. In the same way, the majority of refined persons, commonly the same refined persons, may be heard abusing the practice of interviewing celebrities. It seems a very singular thing to me that this refined world reserves all its indignation for the comparative open and innocent element in both walks of life. There is really a vast amount of corruption and hypocrisy in our election politics. About the most honest thing in the whole mess is the canvassing. A man has not got a right to nurse a constituency with aggressive charities, to buy it with great presents of parks and libraries, to open vague vistas of future benevolence. All this which goes on unrebuked is bribery and nothing else. But a man has got the right to go to another free man and ask him with civility whether he will vote for him? The information can be asked, granted or refused, without any loss of dignity on either side, which is more than can be said of a park. It is the same with the place of interviewing in journalism. 
in a trade where there are labyrinths of insincerity interviewing is about the most simple and most sincere thing there is the canvasser when he wants to know a man's opinion goes out and asks him it may be a bore but it is about as plain and straight a thing as he could do so the interviewer when he wants to know a man's opinions goes and asks him but all the other real and systematic cynicisms of our journalism pass without being vituperated and even without being known the financial motives of policy the misleading posters the suppression of just letters of complaint a statement about a man may be infamously untrue but it is read calmly but a statement by a man to an interviewer is felt as indefensibly vulgar that the paper should misrepresent him is nothing that he should represent himself is bad taste the whole error in both cases lies in the fact that the refined persons are attacking politics and journalism on the ground of vulgarity of course politics and journalism are as it happens very vulgar but their vulgarity is not the worst thing about them things are so bad with both that by this time their vulgarity is the best thing about them their vulgarity is at least a noisy thing and their great danger is that silence that always comes before decay the conversational persuasion at elections is perfectly human and rational it is the silent persuasions that are utterly damnable if it is true that the commons house will not hold all the commons it is a very good example of what we call the anomalies of the english constitution it is also i think a very good example of how highly undesirable those anomalies really are most englishmen say that these anomalies do not matter they are not ashamed of being illogical they are proud of being illogical lord macaulay a very typical englishman romantic prejudiced poetical lord macaulay said that he would not lift his hand to get rid of an anomaly that was not also a grievance many other sturdy romantic englishmen say the same thing they boast of our anomalies they boast of our illogicality they say it shows what a practical people we are they are utterly wrong lord macaulay was in this matter as in a few others utterly wrong anomalies do matter very much and do a great deal of harm abstract illogicalities do matter a great deal and do a great deal of harm and this for a reason that anyone at all acquainted with human nature can see for himself all injustice begins in the mind and anomalies accustom the mind to the idea of unreason and untruth suppose i had by some prehistoric law the power of forcing every man in battersea to nod his head three times before he got out of bed the practical politicians might say that this power was a harmless anomaly that it was not a grievance it could do my subjects no harm it could do me no good the people of battersea they would say might safely submit to it but the people of battersea could not safely submit to it for all that if i had nodded their heads for them for fifty years i could cut off their heads for them at the end of it with immeasurably greater ease for there would have permanently sunk into every man's mind the notion that it was a natural thing for me to have a fantastic and irrational power they would have grown accustomed 
to insanity. For in order that men should resist injustice, something more is necessary than that they should think injustice unpleasant. They must think injustice absurd. Above all, they must think it startling. They must retain the violence of a virgin astonishment. That is the explanation of the singular fact which must have struck many people in the relations of philosophy and reform. It is the fact, I mean, that optimists are more practical reformers than pessimists. Superficially, one would imagine that the railer would be the reformer, that the man who thought that everything was wrong would be the man to put everything right. In historical practice, the thing is quite the other way. Curiously enough, it is the man who likes things as they are who really makes them better. The optimist Dickens has achieved more reforms than the pessimist Gissing. A man like Rousseau has far too rosy a theory of human nature, but he produced a revolution. A man like David Hume thinks that almost all things are depressing, but he is a conservative and wishes to keep them as they are. A man like Godwin believes existence to be kindly, but he is a rebel. A man like Carlyle believes existence to be cruel, but he is a Tory. Everywhere the man who alters things begins by liking things, and the real explanation of this success of the optimistic reformer, of this failure by the pessimistic reformer, is, after all, an explanation of sufficient simplicity. It is because the optimist can look at wrong not only with indignation but with a startled indignation. When the pessimist looks at any infamy, it is to him, after all, only a repetition of the infamy of existence. The court of chancery is indefensible, like mankind. The Inquisition is abominable, like the universe. But the optimist sees injustice as something discordant and unexpected, and it stings him into action. The pessimist can be enraged at wrong, but only the optimist can be surprised at it. And it is the same with the relations of an anomaly to the logical mind. The pessimist resents evil, like Lord Macaulay, solely because it is a grievance. The optimist resents it also, because it is an anomaly, a contradiction to his conception of the course of things. And it is not at all unimportant, but on the contrary most important, that this course of things in politics and elsewhere should be lucid, explicable, and defensible. When people have got used to unreason, they can no longer be startled at injustice. When people have grown familiar with an anomaly, they are prepared to that extent for a grievance. They may think the grievance grievous, but they can no longer think it strange. Take, if only as an excellent example, the very matter alluded to before. I mean the seats, or rather lack of seats, in the House of Commons. Perhaps it is true that under the best conditions it would never happen that every member turned up. Perhaps a complete attendance would never actually be. But who can tell how much influence in keeping members away may have been exerted by this calm assumption that they would stop away? How can a man be expected to help to make full attendance when he knows that a full attendance is actually forbidden? How can the men who make up the chambers do their duty reasonably 
when the very men who built the house have not done theirs reasonably. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? And what if the remarks of the trumpet take this form? I charge you, as you love your king and country, to come to this council, and I know you won't. Conceit and Caricature If a man must needs be conceited, it is certainly better that he should be conceited about some merits or talents that he does not really possess, for then his vanity remains more or less superficial. It remains a mere mistake of fact, like that of a man who thinks he inherits the royal blood or thinks he has an infallible system for Monte Carlo. Because the merit is an unreal merit, it does not corrupt or sophisticate his real merits. He is vain about the virtue he has not got, but he may be humble about the virtues that he has got. His truly honorable qualities remain in their primordial innocence. He cannot see them, and he cannot spoil them. If a man's mind is erroneously possessed with the idea that he is a great violinist, that need not prevent his being a gentleman and an honest man. But if once his mind is possessed in any strong degree with the knowledge that he is a gentleman, he will soon cease to be one. But there is a third kind of satisfaction, of which I have noticed one or two examples lately. Another kind of satisfaction, which is neither a pleasure in the virtues that we do possess, nor a pleasure in the virtues we do not possess. It is the pleasure which a man takes in the presence or absence of certain things in himself without ever adequately asking himself whether in his case they constitute virtues at all. A man will plume himself because he is not bad in some particular way, when the truth is that he is not good enough to be bad in that particular way. Some priggish little clerk will say, I have reason to congratulate myself that I am a civilized person and not so bloodthirsty as the mad mullah. Somebody ought to say to him, a really good man would be less bloodthirsty than the mullah. But you are less bloodthirsty not because you are more of a good man, but because you are a great deal less of a man. You are not bloodthirsty not because you would spare your enemy, but because you would run away from him. Or again, some Puritan with a sullen type of piety would say, I have reason to congratulate myself that I do not worship graven images like the old heathen Greeks. And again somebody ought to say to him, The best religion may not worship graven images, because it may see beyond them. But if you do not worship graven images, it is only because you are mentally and morally quite incapable of graving them. True religion, perhaps, is above idolatry, but you are below idolatry. You are not holy enough yet to worship a lump of stone. Mr. F. C. Gould, the brilliant and felicitous caricaturist, recently delivered a most interesting speech upon the nature and atmosphere of our modern English caricature. I think there is really very little to congratulate oneself about in the condition of English caricature. There are a few causes for pride. Probably the greatest cause for pride is Mr. F. C. Gould. But Mr. F. C. Gould, forbidden by modesty to adduce this excellent ground for optimism, fell back about saying a thing which is said by numbers of other people, but has not perhaps been said lately with the full authority of an eminent cartoonist. 
He said that he thought they might congratulate themselves that the style of caricature which found acceptation nowadays was very different from the lampoon of the old days. Continuing, he said, according to the newspaper report, on looking back to the political lampoons of Rowlandson's and Gilray's time, they would find them coarse and brutal. In some countries abroad, still, even in America, the method of political caricature was of the bludgeon kind. The fact was we had passed the bludgeon stage. If they were brutal in attacking a man even for political reasons, they roused sympathy for the man who was attacked. What they had to do was rub in the point they wanted to emphasize as gently as they could. Laughter and applause. Anybody reading these words, and anybody who heard them, will certainly feel that there is in them a great deal of truth, as well as a great deal of geniality. But along with that truth and with that geniality, there is a streak of that erroneous type of optimism which is founded on the fallacy of which I have spoken above. Before we congratulate ourselves upon the absence of certain faults from our nation or society, we ought to ask ourselves why it is that these faults are absent. Are we without the fault because we have the opposite virtue, or are we without the fault because we have the opposite fault? It is a good thing, assuredly, to be innocent of any excess, but let us be sure that we are not innocent of excess merely by being guilty of defect. Is it really true that our English political satire is so moderate because it is so magnanimous, so forgiving, so saintly? Is it penetrated through and through with a mystical charity, with a psychological tenderness? Do we spare the feelings of the cabinet minister because we pierce through all his apparent crimes and follies down to the dark virtues of which his own soul is unaware? Do we temper the wind to the leader of the opposition, because in all our embracing heart we pity and cherish the struggling spirit of the leader of the opposition? Briefly, have we left off being brutal because we are too grand and generous to be brutal? Is it really true that we are better than brutality? Is it really true that we have passed the bludgeon stage? I fear that there is, to say the least of it, another side to the matter. It is not only too probable that the mildness of our political satire, when compared with the political satire of our fathers, arises simply from the profound unreality of our current politics. Rowlandson and Gilray did not fight merely because they were natural pothouse pugilists. They fought because they had something to fight about. It is easy enough to be refined about things that do not matter. But men kicked and plunged a little in that portentous wrestle in which swung to and fro like dizzy with danger the independence of england the independence of ireland the independence of france if we wish for a proof of this fact that the lack of refinement did not come from mere brutality the proof is easy the proof is that in the struggle no personalities were more brutal than the really refined personalities none were more violent and intolerant than those who were by nature polished and sensitive. Nelson, for instance, had the nerves and good manners of a woman. Nobody in his senses, I suppose, would call Nelson brutal. But when he was touched upon the national matter, there sprang out of him a spout of oaths, and he could only tell men to kill, kill, kill the Frenchman. 
it would be as easy to take examples on the other side camille desmoulins was a man of much the same type not only elegant and sweet in temper but almost tremulously tender and humanitarian but he was ready he said to embrace liberty upon a pile of corpses in ireland there were even more instances robert emmett was only one famous example of a whole family of men at once sensitive and savage i think that mr f c gould is altogether wrong in talking of this political ferocity as if it were some sort of survival from ruder conditions like a flint axe or a hairy man cruelty is perhaps the worst kind of sin intellectual cruelty is certainly the worst kind of cruelty but there is nothing in the least barbaric or ignorant about intellectual cruelty the great renaissance artists who mixed colors exquisitely mixed poisons equally exquisitely the great renaissance princes who designed instruments of music also designed instruments of torture barbarity malignity the desire to hurt men are the evil things generated in atmospheres of intense reality when great nations or great causes are at war we may perhaps be glad that we have not got them but it is somewhat dangerous to be proud that we have not got them perhaps we are hardly great enough to have them perhaps some great virtues have to be generated as in men like nelson or emmett before we can have these vices at all even as temptations i for one believe that if our caricaturists do not hate their enemies it is not because they are too big to hate them but because their enemies are not big enough to hate i do not think we have passed the bludgeon stage i believe we have not come to the bludgeon stage we must be better braver and purer men than we are before we come to the bludgeon stage let us then by all means be proud of the virtues that we have not got but let us not be too arrogant about the virtues that we cannot help having it may be that a man living on a desert island has a right to congratulate himself upon the fact that he can meditate at his ease but he must not congratulate himself on the fact that he is on a desert island and at the same time congratulate himself on the self-restraint he shows in not going to a ball every night similarly our england may have a right to congratulate itself upon the fact that her politics are very quiet amicable and humdrum but she must not congratulate herself upon that fact and also congratulate herself upon the self-restraint she shows in not tearing herself and her citizens into rags between two english privy councillors polite language is a mark of civilization but really not a mark of magnanimity allied to this question is the kindred question on which we so often hear an innocent british boast the fact that our statesmen are privately on very friendly relations though in parliament they sit on opposite sides of the house here again it is well to have no illusions our statesmen are not monsters of mystical generosity or insane logic who are really able to hate a man from three to twelve and love him from twelve to three if our social relations are more peaceful than those of france or america or the england of a hundred years ago it is simply because our politics are more peaceful not improbably because our politics are more fictitious if our statesmen agree more in private 
it is for the very simple reason that they agree more in public and the reason they agree so much in both cases is really that they belong to one social class and therefore the dining life is the real life tory and liberal statesmen like each other but it is not because they are both expansive it is because they are both exclusive end of section two